may be seated, and at this time I'll dismiss the children. Actually, I'm not dismissing the children to Children's Church. Just hit me all of a sudden because there's nobody standing in the corner waiting on me. Uh, today is our fifth Sunday of the month, which means that the children will stay in the service with us, and some uh, actually, uh, some are already aware of that. I assume everyone is. Now everyone should be. So it is great to be back with you this morning. Obviously, this past week I was not here. It was a blessing to have Pastor Lee share with you last Sunday. I was able to track it online, but thank you for allowing me the opportunity to go and take some vacation with my family. It's the first time in, I think, about 10 years that my brother and his family and my sister and her family and then my family all got to get together. And of course, my mom was there with us as well. And it was great. Everybody got along. That doesn't always happen when you bring people together that aren't always together. Uh, but we had a great time, and I thank you for allowing me the privilege of being able to go. And it is great that we have individuals like Pastor Lee who honestly did an incredible job last Sunday in sharing the message. It makes it a lot easier for me to go knowing that you are in good hands. You know, it's also interesting, something that happened this week as I prepared for today's message. I felt led to prepare two different messages, not exactly sure why. And truthfully, going into this morning, I still was not 100% sure which one that I would be sharing with you today. I say that only to warn you that the notes that you have in your bulletins this morning are completely useless to you this morning because you get door number two today. In Acts 26, which is where we're going to be, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I invite you to do so. In Acts 26, the Apostle Paul finds himself on trial before King Agrippa and another governing official named Festus. By the way, the term king is actually a very generous title. He is often referred to as a tetrarch, which is a governor over a large section of the Roman Empire. In other words, he may not truly have been a king. Anyways, Agrippa invites Paul to give a defense for himself. Paul has been proclaiming the gospel. He has basically made some enemies. He found himself, first of all, under threat of persecution. He was going to be killed by a mob. And instead, Paul is arrested for his own protection. While arrested for his own protection, the Apostle Paul said, I appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen. The way the law worked, nobody, once an individual appealed to Caesar, nobody could pass judgment on that Roman citizen until they had been brought to Caesar. So the Apostle Paul finds himself captive. And Agrippa says, Paul, I want to hear your story. Isn't it great? By the way, Pastor Lee, as he was picking out music for today, he didn't know that I was going to be sharing this message because I didn't know that I was going to be sharing this message. But we just got through singing about this is my story. Paul begins in his response with a little bit of flattery and maybe some kindness. He commends Agrippa for being well-versed in the customs of the Jewish people. And he asks Agrippa, to patiently listen to what Paul has to say. And by the way, if you're not listening and thinking about what he's saying here is, 
this is not going to be a short response. Get comfortable, King Agrippa, because I've got a lot to share with you today. He proceeds to tell the entire story to Agrippa. He talks about his childhood, his devout studies of the Jewish faith, and even his pursuit to have Christians persecuted as a young man. But all of that unexpectedly changed. Listen, beginning in verse 12. Again, we're in Acts 26. Listen, beginning in verse 12. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when, all, when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn from them, turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In other words, he has been miraculously called out of sin and into a great mission to reach both Jews and Gentiles with the good news of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but at the beginning, it kind of warned Agrippa, this may not be a short story, but he could have made that so much longer. He doesn't even talk about the fact that when he saw that bright light, he is blinded. He doesn't talk about when Ananias comes to him and the scales fall from his eyes. He doesn't talk about his experience with the disciples and how they embraced him. His story could have got a whole lot longer. But what he does is he clearly defines the reason for his hope. He had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. He would go on to describe how he had faithfully fulfilled this calling, which now resulted in him being in chains. And as Paul is sharing, there's an interesting response. There's actually two people that are in his audience that day. There are likely many, many others, but there are two that are named. One of them is Festus. Festus cuts him off, declaring that Paul must be out of his mind. Too much learning is driving you mad. But Paul will not be deterred. By the way, I'm reading today from the New King James Version. I know a lot of times I'll use the NIV just in case you're looking at it thinking, boy, this is different than what my scripture says. I'm reading today from the New King James Version. Listen to what Paul says after Festus accuses him of being crazy. He said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. 
For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. What he's saying here is everything that I have shared with you actually makes perfect sense. I speak with truth and reason. And then turning his attention intentionally back, intentionally back to Agrippa, Paul basically says, even Agrippa knows this. Festus, you say I'm crazy, but Agrippa, you know. And then he puts Agrippa on the spot. Do you believe in the prophets? I know that you do believe. Well, it's King Agrippa's response that I want us to focus on this morning. In verse 28, still in Acts 26, we read these words. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You almost persuade me. I'm close. I'm not quite at that point. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. This is an interesting response that begs the question as to why an individual would ever choose not to become a Christian. The text that I intended to use this morning from Acts chapter 6 verse 1 through 7 shows a time of great rejoicing and celebration in the early church as thousands of people are choosing to follow Jesus. Miracles are taking place. The resurrection story is more than just a historical event. There are actually eyewitnesses who have seen and can confirm that Jesus Christ has been resurrected. And every time you turned around, there were more people, both Jew and Gentile, who are choosing to follow Jesus. I know we always assume that it was just the Jews, but actually in the passage we were going to use this morning, in Acts 6, the Grecian widows, those are the Gentile widows, were complaining because they were being overlooked in the distribution of food. That means the Gentile widows were a part of the church. Both Jews and Gentiles were believing in Jesus. But the truth is that not all people will choose to follow Jesus. Even in great times like that, not all people will choose to follow Jesus. And I would suggest that in each of these cases, regardless of how they choose to respond, the individual could be defined as almost saved. Salvation was in their grasp, yet they chose not to receive it. So again, I wonder why so many people would choose to reject such a great offer of salvation. Of course, it shouldn't surprise us that this would be true. Even Jesus declared in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, that we are to enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The truth is that 
Many may be very close to salvation, but few will find it. Why? I want to start with Festus in our passage that we just looked at as he gives the first response to Paul's message. He declared that what Paul was saying simply proved that Paul was a lunatic. You're crazy. You may be very educated, but you're also cuckoo. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18, which, by the way, most theologians believe would have actually been recorded prior to this accusation from Festus. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Festus has the gospel message being presented right in front of him, but it is nothing but foolishness, gibberish to him. It's crazy talk. And actually, I kind of get it. There are some things about the Christian faith that seem a bit illogical. From a laws of physics standpoint, the whole story of Christ is dependent upon a man who was born to a virgin, that doesn't happen, who was killed on a cross and resurrected back to life three days later. Again, that doesn't normally happen. You can't be serious. You actually believe that? But it's more than the physical side of this. The things that Jesus taught were also very much counter to what society and the culture would expect. The greatest among you must become the servant of all. And if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. What that's saying is let them hit you on the other side. Do not return evil for evil, but do good to those who do you harm. You should love your enemies. That's crazy. Even the things that Jesus did didn't make sense. When Peter cut off the ear of the soldier who had come to arrest Jesus, it was Jesus who healed the very man who was going to arrest him. And when the disciples argued about which one of them was the greatest, Jesus, knowing that he was the greatest there, responded by washing all of their feet. (laughs) And when Jesus was in the midst of torture and the shameless mocking on the cross, he cried out to his heavenly Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Can you see how crazy this gospel message must sound to someone on the outside? Someone who has not experienced the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ, who has not experienced the transformation that his presence makes real in you and I. I understand where Festus comes from. I assume that you know that Festus wasn't the only one to be almost saved because of ignorance. I've been reading quite a bit recently about God's judgment as recorded in the book of Genesis. One such example is God's judgment that fell upon humanity in the story of Noah. We've all heard the story likely since we were children 
Noah was instructed to build an ark in preparation for a great flood that was going to destroy all the earth. This was God's judgment upon humanity. Humanity had become so evil that God looked at it and he said, I want to start over. I cannot allow this world to remain as it is. So Noah did what he was commanded. But this would not be an overnight endeavor. The reality is that it would take years to build a boat the size of what God instructed Noah to build, large enough for Noah, his family, and all these animals. And as Noah built the ark, he proclaimed God's message to anyone who would listen. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Noah is defined as a preacher of righteousness. In other words, he didn't just work all day and ignore everything else that's going on around him. The odds are people would see him building and they'd stop and say, hey, Noah, what you doing? I'm building a boat. Why are you building a boat in the middle of a desert? doesn't make any sense. And he would begin to proclaim to them what God was doing. The fact that God was about to judge the earth and that they needed to prepare. But no matter how much he preached, nobody would listen. It's frustrating, isn't it? Can you imagine how heartbreaking this must have been for Noah? The people he loved and he cared for, they were not willing to listen. They didn't believe that such a great flood was even possible as it had never even rained. His message was foolishness. How frustrating this must have been. I get why those on the outside might see this whole gospel as a bit of foolishness. But to those who have experienced the resurrected Christ, to those who know the hope and the grace that has been offered to them, maybe it's not so foolish. Festus and the people of Noah's day may have had salvation and the message that brought that salvation sitting right in front of them. But they were just empty words to them. I guess you could say that they were almost saved. Agrippa seems to have a different issue. His is not about ignorance. Perhaps Jesus' words that I read a few moments ago from Matthew chapter 7 might apply to Agrippa. In Matthew 7, 14, it said that narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. The truth is that Agrippa seems to already have everything figured out. He is the grandson of Herod the Great, and the expectation is that he likely would be great as well. If I were to believe, it is likely that my political career will become much more difficult if, if Agrippa chooses to follow this Jesus, he may not be able to follow the path that he's been on. He may offend people. He may cause people to question his own sanity. I wonder if there aren't many today who would almost follow after Jesus, if not for the fact that they already have plans of their own. I'm going to become a professor one day. I'm going to have a family I'm going to become wealthy. I'm going to be an athlete. I'm going to be a musician. I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. There'll come a day that I want Jesus to be a central part of my life, but not today. 
I've actually spoken with college students who will share with me that they want faith to be a part of their lives, but they're thinking down the road. I had a young lady tell me, I want to experience life first, and then, then I'll allow Jesus to be a part of my life. History teaches us that Constantine the Great actually had a conversion experience in 312 AD. He would accomplish much in his life after that. Yet curiously, he waited until he was near death before he would be baptized. And we're not talking about a couple years down the road, but rather decades later. The reason for this delay was that he saw baptism as sort of a sealing the deal type of event regarding his salvation. He believed that he could continue to live in sin so long as he had not been baptized. But the moment that he was baptized, all of that would need to change. In a manner, at least as Constantine would have understood it, he spent decades as almost saved. By the way, there is There is no need for an individual to be baptized in order to be saved. We are baptized in response to the saving work that God has already done. When you surrender your life to him, when you confess your sins, you are forgiven of your sins, you are saved. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward work of grace. The salvation has come and you are testifying to the saving work that God has done in you. But in Constantine's mind, that's not the case. He was almost saved. He was trying to follow Jesus, but free to still act outside of the Lord's teaching until that moment that he would be baptized. Again, it may sound crazy, but I think I understand where Constantine was coming from. I want to be a Christian but Christ's presence in me might complicate things a little bit. And I might not be able to say the things that I've been saying. I might not be able to watch the things that I've been watching. I might not be able to do the things that I've been doing. I want Jesus, but maybe not today. What I'm describing is almost saved told you earlier that I've been reading through Genesis, examining the judgment of God that was taking place, seems so frequent upon humanity. I guess it could be argued that after the great flood, perhaps the next greatest example of God's wrath would be found in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Most of us, again, are somewhat familiar with that story. They were known for their blatant sexual immorality and their brutal violence, sins that also seem very familiar to today's culture. Well, God reached a point where he determined that I will no longer tolerate such immorality from the people in Sodom, and the result is total destruction. Well, almost total destruction. There's one family that has lived in Sodom, that is given the opportunity for deliverance. There's a man named Lot. He's actually a family member of Abraham. 
Because of the fact that Lot has chosen to live a righteous life in spite of the world that he lived in, completely surrounded by a sinful, immoral people, the Lord grants he and his family the chance to escape the coming fire and brimstone that is about to fall from the sky. But the time is now. If you are going to live, you must leave now. If you're going to escape, you cannot wait. Lot immediately begins to gather up his wife and two daughters. He even invites his two sons-in-law, but they're not interested. Again, maybe because his message seemed like foolishness to them. What are you talking about? God's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a great place. We got lots of friends here. This is where we live. This is what we do. Whatever the reason, they don't really take what Lot is saying as seriously. They're given very specific instructions as you flee. And the destruction of God begins to fall upon this place. You are not to look back or you will surely die. So Lot and his wife and two daughters begin this journey fleeing from Sodom. You know the story. According to Genesis chapter 19, Lot, Lot's wife, looks back and she is turned into a pillar of salt. Almost as if she were struck by what appears to be falling sulfur from the sky. You know, her story is one of horrible tragedy. It has been argued that by many that perhaps she had become so attached to the people of Sodom that she longed to be with them even in their destruction. It has been argued that perhaps Lot and his family should have fled the immorality of Sodom long before they did. And it has been argued that perhaps they stayed as long as they did simply because it was the convenient and easy thing to do. But there is more to her tragedy. In fact, this story has many great lessons for you and I. To begin with, I want you to note that it was the righteousness of one man that made salvation possible to many. Neither Lot I'm sorry, neither Lot's wife nor his daughters are noted as righteous, yet they are given the opportunity to escape. Please note that your choices do matter. I'm not telling you that you can live in sin and still escape God's wrath, but what I am saying is that your life choices matter. Who knows, maybe your life choices might lead to others seeking righteousness, and somewhere down the road, they too may be spared of the judgment of God. Your decision to follow the Lord matters. I think of your family. I know that they must choose to follow Jesus too, but your kids and your spouse, they need to see you as a spiritual leader. When I was a youth pastor, I discovered a very common theme, a pattern. We could reach all kinds of kids, but if we did not also reach the parents, then the vast majority of our young people would eventually drift from the church. In fact, let me share a startling statistic with you. I read this many years ago, found it this past week as well. If a child is the first person in the family 
to choose to follow Christ, there is a three and a half percent chance that the rest of the family will also follow Christ. If the mom is the first one in the family to make that choice, there is a 17% chance that the rest of the family will also follow Christ. But if the dad is the first to make that decision, there is a 93% chance that the rest of the family will also choose to follow Christ. I've often joked that this is because the father is the hardest one to reach. And if you've already got him, you've got the most difficult one to begin with. But the truth is, the truth is that the family needs to see that your faith is real. I'm a dad, so I'm talking to dads here. Dad, your family needs to know that you, are in love with Jesus Christ above all else. You need to lead by example, by developing a relationship with Jesus Christ so that your kids do not only hear what's happening at church on Sunday morning, but they see what it is to be a child of God because they watch it in you every day of your lives. Your faith matters to those who are around you. The second thing that we see within this tragedy is not just that your faith matters to the people who are around you, but your faith should also matter specifically to you. Just because you have someone else in your life or family that has exercised great faith, it is not a guarantee that you will be saved. The truth is that Lot's wife was almost saved but not quite. Her faith, or her lack thereof faith, mattered to her. And likewise, your faith matters to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 declares that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, a gift from God. But that gift still requires you to believe your faith matters to you. My fear is that there are many, even in the church, who are almost saved. They're like Festus or the people of Noah's day or like Lot's sons-in-law. They hear the message of God and they assume that it's nothing more than foolishness. According to a 2010 Pew Research survey, listen to this, only 48% of Christians still believe in the second coming of Christ. That's less than half. Has Jesus' promised return been reduced to foolishness even among those in the church? I'm afraid that even more would be defined as almost saved, not because of ignorance or doubt, because instead they are simply not ready. They're more like Agrippa and maybe a little like Lot's wife. There are things that they want to do. There are things in their lives that they don't want to give up. In time, they'll make that decision. But for today, we have dreams and we have plans and we're not ready to let them go. We have things of this world that we've become so attached to. and We don't want to give them up just yet. Or maybe today some of you have made the decision 
that you want to be saved. So right now you are trying to do the right things. You've started coming to church. You give a tithe. You are serving other people. You maybe even read your Bible occasionally at home. But you still have not yet made the decision to follow Jesus with all of your heart. In that case, you are still almost saved. In each of these things, I would suggest that almost saved is a problem. Almost saved is never enough. Listen to the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 20. It's actually John who is sharing, but it's a vision that Jesus gave him. Revelation 20 verse 11 through 15 says this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Listen to this. Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I want you to know that there is no other way to be saved from the judgment of God except through complete surrender to Jesus Christ. And if you have not yet fully surrendered to him, you have a problem. I've got some friends who almost did certain things and they tell you about it. Maybe you do too. I've got a couple of friends who almost played in the NFL. I've heard several others talk about the fact that they almost joined the military, almost came, became a police officer. I've heard others say that, you know, I almost became a pastor. But the thing is, almost is never enough. Either you're in or you're out. Unfortunately, we're never told that King Agrippa was able to follow up on this conversation with the Apostle Paul. He declared, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. What well, is time for us to be more than almost saved? Who knows, but maybe this might be your last chance to make things right between you and your God. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, our purpose is not to cause individuals to fear, but to help us to recognize that almost is not enough. What we just read, we know there's a day of judgment that is approaching. There's a day that all of us will stand before you and we will be forced to give an account. And Lord, our righteousness is not enough. It is only by your grace and our faith in you that we have any hope when we stand in your presence that day. Or some of us have heard the gospel message and we found it to be foolish. 
And even though salvation was in our grasp, we never took hold of it. Others of us have been putting it off, thinking that we've got plenty of time, thinking that there'll come a day that I'll surrender my life, but I've got dreams, I've got things that I want to do first. And Lord, right now, we need to reach that point of surrender. Father, I pray that if there be one here today that does not know you, that right now they would move from the position of almost saved to being fully surrendered to you, saved by the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. With every head bow and eye closed this morning, I ask you if you're in that category and you would say, I've been living a life that is almost saved and right now I want to know that my heart is right before my God. I want to invite you just to raise your hand where you're at and then put it right back down. Thank you. Father, to, for the two individuals that just raised their hands, Father, I pray for the forgiveness and grace that you alone can offer to us. Father, we have played with salvation for far too long. It is time for us to experience it firsthand. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. I pray that hearts and lives would be changed. I pray that from this moment forward, what seems so foolish would be life-changing to us. Lord, I pray not only for the forgiveness of sins, but I pray for the transformation that you alone make possible that we would no longer be the same people we were before, but that instead we would be people who represent a holy God dwelling in us. Father, I pray today for dads. I know this is important for moms too, but Lord, I pray for husbands and fathers today that they would be such incredible men of God that their children, their spouses would know what it is to be a child of God, that they too might walk that same path. Father, I pray that we would recognize how important it is that we maintain this faithful service to you. Again, it is our privilege to be able to call upon your name. And I pray now that you would allow your spirit to transform everything about us. May we not be almost saved, but may we know personally the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. It is such a blessing to be able to share with you this morning. I do believe that God has an incredible grace that is available to each of us, and I hope that each of you know that personally. Next Sunday, you heard it mentioned, I do just want to take this as an opportunity to encourage you. Next Sunday is what's, what we've defined as Back to Church Sunday. And I want to encourage you, it's going to be a great day. If you've got someone who hadn't been in church, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, and maybe they've gotten just kind of separated from the church. Sometimes that happens. I'll be honest with you, COVID was a great cause for that. A lot of individuals got out of the habit of church and just never got back in. This would be a great Sunday to invite loved ones, friends, neighbors, even the people you don't like to come and be a part of the church. We would love to have them with us. Maybe they'll come and you'll begin to like them. I don't know. Uh, we would love to have folks come next week as we celebrate. Uh, it is such a blessing to have each of you with us. If you uh, plan to give this morning, there'll be individuals at the uh, exit doors where you can uh, give your tithes and offering at that point. Thank you again for being with us. Go in peace.